This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Welcome. Good afternoon. It looks like we didn't get that part recorded, so we'll do this again. We're very glad to have you with us for our workshops on mission and world religions. And what we've tried to do is not just talk about a world religion as some kind of intellectual thing, but then also talk about, all right, what does that mean for us in terms of missions? Uh, I believe that God has called us all to be missionaries, right? To somewhere, someplace. My wife goes to the mission field every day as she teaches in an inner city school. And she loves those children there. And uh, I uh, grew up in the mission field and often take students on mission trips and so forth. So we each need to find our place, right? God has a place in mind for us on this earth, just as what? As he has a place for us in heaven. That's a very positive promise from the Spirit of Prophecy. Um, the fact that God has a place for you and a place for me to serve. Very happy to have each one of you here. My colleague, Andres. Acuna. Andres will be sharing at the, at the end. Uh, he is doing two, two roles here because he currently serves as the chaplain at Middle East University in Beirut, Lebanon. So he's more and more familiar with the Middle Eastern and, and Arab and Muslim world. But he also spent time serving in Thailand before he came to, to Lebanon. So I've asked him to share on that part um, a little bit later. First, we'll spend a little bit of time getting an overview of Buddhism, or I would say a slice of part of Buddhism, and then uh, we'll try to go a little bit further with some practical applications for missions. Let's pray together. Dear God of beauty and form and God of peace, we think of these things when we think of Buddhism and we think of those who are seeking to find tranquility and peace and justice and joy and we're very, very thankful that you have created us in your image and you give us the opportunity to know you. Thank you for the truth of scripture that we have. Thank you for the truth that we find in the spirit of prophecy. Thank you also for the fact that we do not have all monopoly of truth, but you have also given truth, scattered it throughout the world, that it may lead others to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a couple of things that uh, actually I, I was going to pull a couple of slides over and in the next session we'll talk about a little bit more. Sometimes we get the idea that there's the Christian believers and there's the pagan world. And we kind of get the impression that these two never have any overlapping or they never have anything like that. But may I just say to you that you need to be very aware that there are those in what we call the pagan world who may actually be closer to God than we are. You know? We think of the wise men who came at Jesus' birth. We think of the Greeks who came near the end of his life. People were coming from the east and the west, looking, looking for more truth, looking for a deeper understanding, following what they knew. And uh, there are some profound statements that I'll be sharing with you in the next session about the fact that there are those, even among the heathen, who are following the Holy Spirit and following God. Sounds like a surprise. If you read the first two chapters of Desire of Ages, you'll also see something else, and that is a very profound statement that there were truths that had been neglected by God's people, 
They were then cherished and preserved by those outside the community of believers. Isn't that a humbling reality? That there are truths of God that we may be neglecting that God is having others retain and cherish in order for that truth not to be lost. So I think there's much that we can share and much that we can learn. Let's talk a little bit about Buddhism and the endless knot, the cross and the endless knot. The endless knot is not a symbol for all of Buddhism. In some places, the wheel or the Mandela might be another one. But at least in Tibetan Buddhism, this is one. And may I just say, as we talk about Buddhism, as is true with Islam, as is true with uh, Hinduism, as is true with Christianity, location makes a big difference. An African Muslim is very different than a Muslim in Saudi Arabia. A Malaysian Muslim is different than one who comes from Pakistan. And the same is true when it comes to Buddhism. Geography makes a big difference, whether you're talking about Tibet or Thailand and so forth. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about Buddhism. How did Buddhism begin? Does Buddhism have a founder? Hinduism does not. Does Buddhism? Does Buddhism have a founder? A couple of trick questions. Does Christianity has a founder? Okay. Well, we would say God through Jesus, if you want to look at it that way. What about Islam? Does Islam have a founder? Don't ever say to a Muslim that Muhammad founded your religion. That would imply that it's a human religion to them. So you always, they believe God founded their religion, not a human being. So you really, you don't talk about Muhammad as the founder. Does Hinduism have a founder? No. We don't really even know when it starts or how it starts. It's this amalgamation that grows. How about Buddhism? Buddhism clearly has a founder. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Uh, you see the, the happy face of the happy profile of Buddha here. This is not how Buddha always was, or at least the one who was the founder. And so there is a reform movement that began within Hinduism in the 6th century BC. In other words, around the time of Give me a biblical person around that time period. You're right, Daniel, very good. So around the time of Daniel, we have a reform that starts within Hinduism. And it's, uh, it's therefore, because it comes out of Hinduism, we began as a reform. There's some similarities and differences that come through. By the way, I forgot to mention here. Right here is a place you can go for the entire handout. Uh, you don't need to jot everything down. You can just download the whole thing. It's online at this location uh, through Dropbox. So that might be helpful for you. We'll put that up again at the end also. All right, so we have this reform movement that begins and pulls together some, um, some similarities. Now, I always say this with some hesitation because I have uh, one uh, book on Buddhism written by a, a Buddhist who says, Buddhists don't believe in reincarnation. I have another one written by a Buddhist who says they do. So you can, you can pick the one that you, that you like. They do not believe in it in quite the same way that Hindus do. Same with karma. They both believe in karma, but they have different understandings. So Buddhism began as a reform movement, but eventually became uh, a, a separate religion, although there's many overlapping. There are some differences. Buddhism rejects the idea of this Atman, the individual soul, being connected with a universal source of life. That is a major distinction between Buddhism and Hinduism. And Buddhism does not accept all the holy writings of Hinduism. Uh, 
And let me ask the next one. Um, is Buddhism a religion? It's very interesting. It is being marketed more and more in the West as merely a philosophy. And it certainly is that. Uh, but it has religious dimensions to practice and purpose. So you could answer that question both ways, but it certainly has the components of religion. Does Buddhism believe in God? Is it atheistic? Is Buddha God? Well, there's some questions that we'll want to get into right here. Actually, Buddhism, classical Buddhism, denies the existence of God or gods. Buddha is not a god in most of the classical forms of Buddhism. So who was Buddha, or better yet, who was Siddhartha Gautama, who was the, the one we think of as the one who became Buddha? Buddha is not his name. Buddha is a term. What does it mean? It means the enlightened one. And so it was the, the title or the state that Siddhartha Gautama achieved when he became uh, the one who understood his past lives and, and so on and so forth. We'll get into that in a moment. Born around 650, excuse me, 560 BC in what is now northeastern India, Siddhartha Gautama his birth is filled with fables and stories and mixtures of truth and, uh, and uh, myth that have been wrapped together. For example, um, the story of his birth talks about how uh, his mother went up into the mountains. She had uh, an encounter with a white elephant and she uh, then was ready to give birth to her son. She gave birth standing up and then immediately the baby... There was all kinds, when the baby was born, there was all kinds of natural phenomena that took place. Uh, earthquakes and, and shooting stars and, and all kinds of things in nature as nature is welcoming uh, the birth of this special one. And this child immediately is born and stands up and starts walking and talking. Uh, probably rather a miraculous uh, uh, kind of description. And so this, this child walks and talks and says, I have lived many, many past lives. I've now come to this life, and this is the life in which I will become the enlightened one. And so this is the birth. You see him walking here, and you see the, uh, well, we think we see. We see the experience there as he, as he goes through walking from his mother at the time of his birth. Well, well, here we go. Technology is really great, isn't it? All right, so there you see him walking along, taking these steps, and as he walked, his steps were enlightened and, and, uh, and so forth. I just want to mention all this because someone said to me one time, a Westerner said to me he'd become a Buddhist, and I said, well, why was that? He said, you know, that stuff of Christianity that I grew up, he said, I grew up being taught all about Jesus. That stuff about the virgin birth and death on a cross and resurrection, I can never believe any of that. That's just too outrageous. Uh, that's too, too crazy, and I'm thinking, well, there might be some things here that test your faith a little bit too. Uh, he had lived many, many previous lives, and now he comes to this life that's going to be so important. His father is told, according to the fable, his father is told about all this, and his father decides, look, I'm a Raj. I don't want my son growing up to be a, a religious holy man. I want him to be a ruler. And so 
He decides that he's going to spoil his son and he's going to raise him like a Paris Hilton, you know, give him everything that he wants, give him all the luxuries and the riches. And so he's given this very, very wonderful birth where he's treated to the best palaces, the best horses, the best clothes, the best friends. He grows up in luxury. He is very, very spoiled. He's very well educated. He gives, the father gives him everything that he wants because he doesn't want his son to grow up to be um, uh, the one who will be this religious leader. At the age of 16, he's married. He soon has a son. He has a harem. He has all the good life, but he's not happy. And materialism leaves him empty, chained, unhappy. Does that remind you at all of the Western world? Huh? This may help you understand why Buddhism is so attractive in the West. Because uh, Siddhartha Gautama grew up with everything. And it still wasn't meaningful. He still didn't find the purpose in life that he was longing for. And so, at last, um, there were four great signs that the religious holy men had told his father that if, if Siddhartha Gautama ever saw these, then he would leave and he would become a holy man. And so, Dad decided he would never let him see those things. He kept him in the palace. He never let him be around those sites which would cause him to, to leave his home and his family and his luxury. They were to see these following four things. A diseased old man, a decrepit old man, a dead man, and a hermit monk. Eventually he makes some journeys from home and on these three journeys he sees three of the signs and he's beginning to think, if you have been surrounded by comfort and luxury and pleasure, what do you think happens when you're confronted with disease and poverty and, and death? You begin thinking about life. I have this happen every time I take students on mission trips into parts of the world where they face poverty face to face and they can't just turn the channel or turn off the TV. It's right there. And so you begin thinking, why am I so blessed? Why, did I, uh, why was I born where I was born? How come I have this life? And he begins to struggle with all these. And eventually he, he sees the last one, a hermit monk. And he, this man who has almost nothing, who wanders from place to place, begging and meditating, is happier than he is. He says, something's wrong with my life, something's wrong with my religion, and he decided that Hinduism had failed. After all, it's the dominant religion, it hasn't solved the problems of society. And so after he sees this fourth monk, at the age of 29, he realizes the true condition of humanity. And now comes what is called the great renunciation. He tells his father, it's not right to force a man who's anxious to escape uh, to hold him there in a burning house. What is the burning house? The burning house with his, was his religion, was Hinduism. He said, you're forcing me to stay within this, even though it's failing, it's burning down, it's not working. And he concludes that all of life's pleasures and attachments are worthless. What happens to people who go through those kinds of experiences? We would call this what? A conversion, a great renunciation. What he decided was only important was true knowledge. He has this great renunciation and he goes from being a prince to being a seeker. The reason I'm spending your time talking about Siddhartha Gautama and his journey is because it provides the model in Buddhism for each person. 
to become a seeker, to become one who's seeking after truth, questing after truth. So at the age of 29, he leaves everything, family, he leaves his son, he leaves his wife, he leaves his, his, his attendants, his servants, his favored horse, his family, everything is left behind. And he begins a lifelong quest for enlightenment, lifelong search for truth. And he became very concerned about the issue that had troubled him at the beginning. That was the issue of suffering. He concludes that Hinduism is not effective. There must be another solution for the issue of suffering. Now, when you've met people who've gone through a conversion experience, have you ever noticed how sometimes the pendulum swings from one side way to the other? You know, people go from a really wild party life, so, so strict they don't eat mayonnaise, you know what I mean? Uh, they, don't, they, they just go from one extreme to another sometimes. And a lot of us don't like mayonnaise, that's not my point, but you get the idea. Siddhartha Gautama went from an extreme of luxury and self-indulgence. What do you think is the opposite pendulum? Instead of self-indulgence, it's self-denial, self-sacrifice. And here's the picture of the Buddha you've probably never seen. When he leaves home, he begins this journey of fasting. He goes from pleasure-seeking to aestheticism, this very strong kind of self-denial. He, he goes towards a, a monkish kind of life. Does that sound like Martin Luther? Does it sound like others? You can see some similarities. And he became extremely, extremely emaciated because of extreme fasting and yoga and so forth. He used to sit with the few disciples who'd gather around him. By the way, this is not the lifestyle that attracts too many followers. If I showed you that picture and said, come follow me, this is how we'll all become, you may have second thoughts, you know. And so he didn't have too many followers at this time, but they used to talk about how he could put pieces of rice on his rib cage, and they would sit there on the ribs. Uh, I won't demonstrate that for you. I'm not able to. Okay. But you, you see this extreme movement. Unfortunately, what does he discover after spending time in this very, very deprived state? He realizes that hasn't made him happy either. Self-indulgence or self-denial, neither one has brought happiness and joy. So he chooses the middle path. Yes. Yes. Thank you for the question. It's very hard to say what's fact and what's myth because the documents we have are written 500 years or so after his life. So if people want to raise questions about the Bible's veracity, which is within 30, 40, 50 years, imagine 500 years. So there is some kernel of truth there. I can't tell you that the fact that the disciples said they put rice on his ribs, I can't tell you if that's fact or myth. But we do know the renunciation was true. We do know that he left his family and he went through an extreme time. Much more than that, I can't tell you, too much is verifiable. Thank you for clarifying that very much. So he decides on the middle path. And instead of being extreme this side, extreme this side, uh, you know, take the middle path. And for the next seven years, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, struggles to find the answers. He faced many, many temptations. If you read Buddhist literature, it tells the stories that he went through as, as the evil one, Mara, tried to tempt him with women, with, with abusive uh, 
substances, with all kinds of demonic things and so forth. And he kept resisting all these as he goes through the forest and goes, this is for years, he's still journeying, trying to find what he's looking for. At last, at last, he is meditating, seeking to find the answer to the problem of suffering. That's what he can't understand. Why is there so much suffering? The same issue we call in theology, theodicy. Why is there so much suffering? Why doesn't God do something about it? Is there a God? What's the cause? What's the solution? He sits underneath what's called the Bodhi tree, which is really an enlightenment tree. And you see the, the experience here of these different kinds of animals. And, and different kinds of demons and peoples that come. Death comes after him. Many, many other things come after him as he's sitting there seeking for enlightenment. And on the day of the full moon, according to the, the Buddhist teachings, he's, he attains supreme enlightenment. Now, I want to make sure you caught that point. He attains the solution. Now, in Islam... The Quran was received how? Muhammad said God gave it to him and told him recite. So Islam teaches the Quran is, is a given revelation. Hinduism believes that the writings of Hinduism are a given revelation gathered through time. What about this? Please make sure you understand. No one came to Buddha in a dream or in a vision. The answers were found how? He attained them. And how did he attain them? He perceived the divine eye and perceived the Eightfold Path. And this enlightenment knob here on the top of his head is to represent that. So he looks within and looking into himself, he finds the answer. Did you catch that point? Very, very important. Because for Buddhism, the answer to human problem is found within. So now he becomes the enlightened one. And on third watch of the night, he destroys all the other defilements and so forth and becomes the fully enlightened one. And this is to be the pattern for all of us, that we could look within and find the solution to suffering, the solution to our problems and so forth. So he gathers a group of disciples around him and for the next 44 years begins to teach and preach and so forth. What are his essential teachings? I'll give you the four noble truths now in kind of a westernized way. The first one, what do you think the first truth is? Well, what was he pondering so hard? What is the problem of suffering and how can it be solved? He comes to the first one, suffering exists. And you might sit there saying, duh, I knew that. But you know, there's a big difference between knowing it and knowing it. You know what it's like to know that people have struggles and problems? and then experience it yourself. It's far different to know that death is real than to lose a loved one through death. He experientially discovered that suffering exists, and this is a big problem in the world. In fact, if we had time for another discussion, we could spend several hours asking the question, what do the religions of the world say as to why suffering exists and what's the solution? It's a very, very provocative question and discussion. So what causes human suffering? As Buddha thought and thought and thought about, it was very clear to him that the cause of human sufferings is our human desires and passions. Some of you are suffering right now. You wish you were taking a rest. You're suffering because you ate too much lunch. You're suffering because you get, didn't get enough sleep last night. 
So what are the problems? Your suffering comes from our human desires and passions. And if you look at it that way, aren't there many, many sufferings in this world that we create of ourselves, many problems we create of our own? I have to have this, I have to have that, I have to do this. So he had a point of truth here that's very significant. All right? Suffering will cease when something takes place, when you eliminate your desires. So look, anyone cold, anyone hot, just stop feeling it. Eliminate the desire excuse me, for food, eliminate the desire for, for friendship, for love. Eliminate those desires and you won't suffer any longer. Well, how does one do that? That's where the Noble Eightfold Path comes in. The, eight, the Eightfold Path is the way that a person can accomplish the removing of, of the desires. The Eightfold Path gets complicated. It's all about the right things. And let's take a look. Do you, do you understand this? Is this very clear to everybody? Let me give you an example. <coughs> a Western television crew was going to Nepal. Uh, excuse me, it was Tibet. They were going to Tibet to film um, a, a, an episode that took place in a monastery there, a Buddhist monastery. It was high in the mountains, freezing cold. They were burdened up with all the clothing they could put on. You know, face masks, ski masks, gloves, hats, levels of, of clothing, layers. And as they got closer and closer, trudging through the snow to the monastery, they heard a sound of someone chopping wood. And when they got there, they discovered a monk outside with an ax, splitting wood, and he's standing there with just trousers on, no shirt, no shoes, standing in the snow. And uh, they said to him, how can you do that? He says, you know, I just, I just stopped feeling cold years ago. I just determined not to let my body respond to the senses of heat and cold, and I just stopped feeling cold. So I've tried to do that at home with our thermostat. My wife doesn't want to agree with that, you know. Uh, just cease the desire, you know, put it out of your mind. Just learn not to respond to the sensations. So... The Eightfold Path says you have to have the right knowledge, you have to have the right attitude, the right speech, the right action, the right occupation by which uh, we mean how, not just your job, but your position in life, your right effort, your right mindfulness, and your right composure. So before you do something, you should think about these things. Now that's going to take some time, right? So who has the time to do all this before you think and act and do? Really, this is where the monastic role of being coming a monk becomes so important because they have the most time to think through all of these. What would be the right knowledge? What would be the right speech? And so forth. So enlightenment is the goal and what is sought. So you would spend time sitting, meditating, reflecting. The chanting would go on and on and on. So the solution to suffering, life is temporary, it's sorrowful. So you want to reach the state of consciousness. Anyone getting tired of it yet? You know? Oh, we've got, you know, 12 hours to go still. We could talk about nirvana. I'm not talking about the band here, although the band was into some aspects of Buddhism. 
But nirvana is built on the Four Noble Truths. It literally means, notice this, not some paradise, but it literally means the blowing out of the flames of desire. Blowing out the flame of desire, blowing out the flame of self. All human desires, all human um, cravings are extinguished because they cause us so much suffering. So ultimately, ultimately, and this is a difficult thing for me to say because it's a little offensive to a Buddhist, but ultimately, the teachings of Buddha really said that the ultimate freedom is this liberation from, from samsara, the cycle of life, death, and rebirth, and that comes when self is eventually extinguished. And the individual self no longer matters. The individual self is, is merged into, is, into cosmicness. You know. And this becomes uh, the ultimate goal. Westerners tend to look at nirvana and think of it some kind of like a Christian heaven without God and Jesus and in truth and any of that. They think of a heaven place, but it's not really that in the literature. Dharma, as you know, uh, probably has to do with religious teachings or, or practices, and it includes everything, the moral laws, the physical laws of the universe, but it's very much an Eastern view of knowledge, which is experiential and so forth. And where does this come from? Well, it's found through enlightenment. Notice that again. And how do you get enlightenment? You look where? Within. Keep that trend in mind. But Dharma also in, uh, deals with the essential elements. If you go to a Buddhist monastery or pagoda, uh, you'll see earth, water, fire, and air all being used regularly. Um, in the 70s, there was a, uh, a band in the States that called itself Earth, Wind, and Fire. They left out one of them, but they were heavily influenced by some aspects of westernized Buddhism and so forth. Karma in Buddhism is much more of cause and effect than this life. Hinduism tends to orient karma more towards the coming incarnation. And uh, it determines the quality of your works, the quality of your actions, the good vibes that you're getting and so forth. And this is the basis for the universe and we're all in bondage to the cycle of good and evil and you see the here and the now and how they all interact with each other until finally, hopefully you can find liberation through Buddhism. This brings us to the concept of balance in all things. Balance is very, very important in Buddhism. By the way, some of these ideas now are very dominant in interior design in many Hollywood movies, and we could spend hours talking about the influence of Buddhism in the media in the West. Buddhism, as I said, classically does not believe in God. Uh, Buddha is not a human being who saves you. He's a human being who shows you the path to enlightenment. You see the difference? He's not savior, redeemer. And then the Mandela, the circle of life, is a way for you to get in touch with the spirits of your ancestors and be able to get in touch with the spirits of nature and so forth. Because the question comes, if I'm praying and I'm worshiping, but I'm not worshiping Buddha and I'm not worshiping gods, who am I worshiping? Who am I in touch with? Well, it's ancestors and spirits of nature. Buddha said, we are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. That emphasis on, on the right-mindedness, that emphasis on having a good mind, a good attitude is really important. I talked about the importance of monks. They really have the time to, to follow the teachings of, uh, of Buddha most scrupulously. 
Among the three baskets of Buddhist literature, one of them deals with the, the first basket deals with the, the rules for the monks, the 227 rules that they have for the monastery and so forth. You see a very simple lifestyle. Actually, this one is quite rich because a basic monk would just have two robes, needle thread, um, uh, sifting uh, bowl for sifting out life when you drink or anything like that because you have, should have respect for all life. But a typical Buddhist home would have a shrine in the home for worship. Um, you see here various items. We'll talk about these in just a moment. As this young man is kneeling before pictures of his ancestors, he's not kneeling before the Hoover vacuum cleaner, as, uh, as you may think. But this is uh, how a family would practice twice a day chanting, morning and evening, bowing before the altar, uh, paying respect to their ancestors and so forth. Here's a diagram from a a Hindu textbook that tells you exactly how uh, the altar should be established with the statue of Buddha here, with the stupa, which is the mind of enlightenment, the three baskets, the sacred writings here, then each of these bowls with different kinds of offerings of uh, sometimes water, flour, rice, other kinds of things, and these are all placed in specific, very careful, neat order. Yes? you should always show respect because your ancestors continue to have influence, they continue to affect life, they, they continue to have value in your life. In fact, I was doing Bible studies with a young Buddhist girl at Andrews University a few years ago, and she asked me a very difficult question. What should I do when I go home at Christmas vacation? Because I know our family will go to the, to the temple uh, for New Year's and I'll need to offer offerings to my ancestors. What shall I do now that I know that when you die, you really die? And, and she was struggling with that, difficult question. All right, uh, prayer wheels are very important because they provide a way of praying and, and you can put many, wrap many, many phrases and prayers and as that spins on an axle, it uh, can be praying. Uh, sometimes prayer wheels are spun like this for seven, eight hours a day. Other places they'll put prayer flags where as the wind blows, the, the prayers will be offered. A more modern version of this is they've discovered that a computer disk drive runs even faster. So you can pray many, many, many more times that direction. Here we see an example of a monk praying. Uh, I mentioned the three baskets and we're just gonna wrap this up here in a moment. The three baskets that, that kind of are the sacred writings and they have to do with, with sermons and dialogues, rules for the monks, and statements of doctrines. Uh, they are uh, very, very, uh, one of them, for example, statements on doctrines, some of these things are hardly read except by, by scholars, but they, they're respected and revered. And again, as I said, the, the accounts of Buddha's life intertwine much fact and myth together. There are several divisions within Buddhism. We won't talk about the big boat or the little boat and so forth, but there's, there's one that kind of is inclusive for everybody. Everybody has enlightenment available and the other is much more restrictive. Only the monks and a few others are able to have those experiences. Uh, Zen Buddhism has become very, very popular in the States. Uh, a guy by the name of Phil Jackson, you've probably heard of, a basketball coach brought Zen into uh, popular thinking. He was teaching the Bulls how to do Zen practice before their basketball games. There's a guy you may have heard of called Michael Jordan, and uh, he and many others were taught Zen practices. Dennis Rodman and so forth, that's one of the reasons why Dennis Rodman was, has this affiliation with North Korea that you've, you've heard about probably. 
to make the ideas more palatable, instead of saying we're getting into the Zen, it was changed to we're getting into the zone. And when Michael Jordan scored unbelievable shots, often he would say, well, I'm just in the zone, in the zone. And he was actually had been taught about Zen uh, during uh, his time with Phil Jackson and so forth. Very, very popular form of Buddhism in the West, but not so much in the East. It's the fifth largest religion in the world. It is not just an ancient group. You see the guy working on the computer here. Why is it so appealing to the West? Just the last couple of slides here. There's an appreciation of form and beauty that makes a Buddhist, Buddhist place very attractive. They have a great appreciation for aesthetics, and I think that's wonderful. There's also a desire to be tolerant. Now, that tolerance also means if I don't want to be accountable to God, I don't need to follow the Ten Commandments, I don't need to follow any rules from God, I don't need to pray to Him each day, I don't need to have any religious practices, so I can be spiritual without being religious. Are you listening to me? That is a very, very strong, strong and appealing uh, aspect of, of Buddhism. So it becomes this philosophy or religion or lifestyle that's acceptable to skeptics. And it feels more natural than grace because grace is something we're not used to. People getting what they deserve and, and natural results, that's much more comfortable. But there's a high and strong moral emphasis that's uh, present in Buddhism. Buddhist meditation is problematic. You remember the parable Jesus told about an evil spirit going out of a man? And when it, uh, when it goes out, it realizes the house is left empty. Notice this. It's unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. That's the mind that has removed temptation. It has removed all thinking. So it's what? It's put in order, and it's clean, but it's what? It's empty. And what does Jesus say happens? Then that devil goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of the man is worse than that. There is a, an important role for meditation, which is filling your mind on the things of Christ, studying scripture, spending a thoughtful hour each day on the life of Christ. Those things are all appropriate. There is a counterfeit or a, a non-productive kind of meditation that is the emptying of the mind, which is opening it up for the devil to, to lead in all kinds of ways. Major differences. I think we've touched on almost all of these. I would just say on this one of desires for a moment, please understand desires are not the problem in Christianity. It's the use of them, right? Desire for food, sex, love, all those things are not evil in themselves. It's the expression of those things that is the problem when our human nature takes us down the wrong paths. So that would be something that we would want to keep in mind as a big, big difference. We have many um, centers for the study of various religions. And here's a little bit about the Center for East Asian Religion. Again, this is all going to be online. I'm, I'm rushing because I want to get to Andres Acuna, who spent time in Thailand. Brother Andres, it's your time. He'll need about seven, eight, ten minutes. And isn't this a nice shirt? Hello, I'm Andres from Argentina, but uh, last, no, 2012, uh, we've been in Thailand. That is why my, my beautiful shirt is, and I'm not using shoes. Yeah, I'm not using shoes. If you go to this place, especially in Thailand, you can see in every shop, 
school, uh, the buildings of the government also, a lot of shoes outside in the doors. Um, and I like the, this idea because, uh, especially in the church, also in Adventist church, when you go there inside, you can see the people without shoes there. And they believe, they think the place is holy. And I was thinking about us, about the Christians, uh, how many times we also, we cannot turn off our cell phone in the church. But they also take the shoes off and, and praise the Lord or whatever God uh, without shoes. Uh, I want to share with you some small pictures of our experience there. This is my boy. No, it's not my, my, my child. He's not my son. Uh, Marker, three years old. He speaks perfect English, better than me. He taught me English. I really was teaching him English, but uh, he taught me English. In Ubon Rachatani, he's a city in Thailand. It's yeah, east, southeast. Um, that is the last Sabbath there, or last Sabbath there. I invite him to come to the church. Well, I, I, I was presenting the, the sermon that Sabbath. And in the first picture, you can see Marker with his dad. They're Buddhist, or they were Buddhist. I, I don't know yet. Because they came to that Sabbath, and because I invite Marker to sing with me, Jesus loves me, this I know. I, I invite Marker to sing with me. His dad came with the camera. He recorded the whole sermon and the song. And a few weeks after that, uh, we, we went back to Argentina. And I saw some pictures in Facebook that he was coming to the church almost regularly. And he also present uh, some special songs in the church. He played the guitar and he present. And he, with uh, he, um, his family, and Marker, and the new baby, all of them start to come to the church. Thanks God, uh, we can work with them. The other girl is another of my students. Uh, this is a group of students, Sunday and my wife. Um, Sunday students, the way to share the gospel with them is uh, language school teach them English. Uh, even me, I taught English, yes. I started to speak English there in Thailand last year, uh, in 2012. Um, I taught English to these little kids, three to six years old. And it's a very effective way. It's amazing how these kids go home and sing the songs, the English song, or tell them the stories, tell the parents the stories. Oh, I learned today this story, that story, and share with them the portion of the Bible that we can, we can teach. So this uh, group, this is one of my favorite ones, music. By the way, in Thailand, they used to choose names of uh, English names. They have uh, their names, but they used to choose the names uh, according to what they liked, music, marker, ice cream. Uh, and yes, you have different names, his music. Uh, the parents, uh, the parents got divorced, and he was living with the uncle and with the grandma, and uh, no one wants to teach him any English, anything, and he came to our school, and we start to to have classes, English classes with him, and even you cannot, you can't teach English to this guy. You can't teach English, 
the only thing you can do is play, just play. So we play all the time. I, I, I try to talk to him. And at the end of the, our, our year there, we received some gift. The, parent, the parents, they, they made this gift for us. One of the parents, he painted this beautiful thing. And the other mother of Nati's student, my wife, Nati, um, made this calendar. So these people, uh, I learned many things in Thailand. I want to share with you just one of the things. Here's the complete family. I learned in Thailand how to smile. Thailand is the land of smiles. I don't know if you probably you heard this, but it's a land of the smile. The smile they smile all the time for everything. Even they cannot talk to you English because they don't know English, most of them. They just wave and hey, hi is the only word probably they know. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Or my name is, and they, they try to talk to you. They try to. So uh, there's really good people. I miss these people because I learned how to smile in, in Thailand. Another thing that I learned there and I want to apply to my family and my religion, but I hope this can help to many of us. The Buddhism, they live their religion, if we can, yeah, it's not a religion, but uh, they live like Buddhists. The, the whole family, they are Buddhist. That is why this small kid that Pastor also mentioned, uh, shown, show us now in the picture, Kids and elders and youngers, everyone, all the time, they're living in the family, in the house, they're living the religion. They're not going to the temple one time a year or one time a week, like us, and living the religion that day. They live every day. And it's a culture of uh, respect. They respect the older ones, the younger ones. They care for them. And they care for others and for the foreigners. I think uh, the attitudes, the attitude is the, the one of the best I I saw I even see in, in any religion. Um, the they they live like Buddhists. They are Buddhist. They feel like Buddhists. They grow like Buddhists and they die like Buddhists. They are Buddhist. I really like that because they live in the family and the the kids know from the beginning. They know. They are Buddhist, and they have some values. Uh, but uh, one of the most important things is uh, they respect and smile all the time. And they are very open to receive you, to learn about you. Now, to follow your ideas, uh, probably not. The only way, the only way is uh, be friends. If you're a friend with them, if you start to share uh, time and spend time with them and share different things and meals, and uh, probably you can do something. But you, but you need a lot of time. You, one year is not enough sometimes. A couple of months is not enough. You need some years there. You need to learn the words. You need to learn the numbers. You need to learn how to say hi and bye. And you need to spend time with them. So. Uh, if we want to reach some Buddhist culture, probably uh, and, and other ones, Islam, and 
we need to spend time with the people. Only a Bible study of one session is not enough. We need to spend time with them. If it's possible in the place better, so we can share with them the God of our love, uh, God's love. So, okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Andres. I'm just wondering if there's any particular questions. If they're hard ones, he answers those. If they're easy ones, I'll try. Any particular questions? Yes. Uh, uh, this gets into some of the, the geographical issues. What you see, and again, I want to go back to saying Buddhism in Tibet is different than Malaysia, is different than, than uh, what you find in Japan. Uh, so you have these different, and so you always have to say, well, the Buddhism I experienced here was this way and so forth. So, uh, and many places it mingles. And one of the interesting things is to, to realize that the closer Buddhism is to Hinduism, geographically, the more of Hinduism has been retained and, and is overlapping and still there. And when you get over towards Japan, you get more of the influence of Shintoism and other things. Yes? Again, I think some of the key things are respect for life. We had some Buddhist neighbors at one time uh, when we were living in Virginia. They would not kill anything. If they found a sparrow hit beside the road, they would pick it up and bring it home. Uh, they, even in their garden in the backyard, they didn't weed because they didn't want to take weeds out that were living and so forth. My kids thought that was a great plan, uh, not having to weed the garden. But uh, the respect for life is very, very important. And I think the respect for the earth and environmental concern is another common ground that you can find. Certainly the idea of an unhurried life, a life that treasures peace, uh, quietness, these are things that are appreciated very much. Uh, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Andres. Respect for the family. Respect for the family, yes, yes, thank you very much. Education, uh, education is important. Ethics, living a high ethical value. Uh, these are all things that are much, much appreciated. Yes? She asked the question, what did I tell the girl who asked the question, what shall I do when I go home? Oh, I hesitate to say that publicly, but uh, I'll take the risk and hopefully I won't get fired. Um, there is a passage where the similar question is asked. Do you know where it is in scripture? When Naaman comes to be healed, he asks for some very strange things when he goes, read the story later today. When Naaman comes and he's healed of leprosy, when he goes back, he asks the prophet before he goes, first of all, can I take some dirt? That's interesting. Why would he want to take two donkey loads of dirt back home with him? This is a cultural reality. There was a, there's a belief called henotheism, which is this idea that God is a God of territory. And he was in the territory of Israel, so therefore he's under the power and the protection of what God? The God of Israel. But now I'm going back home to Syria. I won't be in the territory of the God of Israel, now I'm under the gods of Syria. And the only way I'll be protected is I need to take some of that dirt home with me. Are you getting that? And Elisha honors that request. 
He seems to understand that's where that man is at that time. And then Naaman asked the next question, Sir, when I go into the temple with the king, and I'm on his right-hand side into the temple, what should I do? This may surprise you. It may not seem very kosher. But Elijah allowed him to go in and do that service that he was required to do as a leader there in Syria in a different culture. And we see that Elisha says, go in peace. You'll need to do that if that's the requirement. A little different perspective than we would usually find. Yes. Great question. With a Western Buddhist, and West, uh, we are the more secular and postmodern that you are, the more appealing Buddhism becomes. Uh, it fulfills that niche of something to believe in, you know, something a uh, lifestyle to live. I would not approach it from the religion standpoint. I'd approach it from the lifestyle standpoint much more. And in our next session, I'm not pushing for that, but our next session when we talk about postmodernism. We'll see a little bit of that, of that because Buddhism has come to the West as re, with much of its religious garb removed. So I think I would start talking about, again, consistently in missions, look for points of common ground. I mentioned the first session, the idea of redemptive analogies. Do you know what we mean by that? That's finding something in that culture that can be an avenue to discuss uh, more. For example, in Greek culture at the time when the New Testament was written, there were the Gnostics who had this idea of, of the Logos, the Word. And it was a secret knowledge that uh, they, you could have by being initiated into that society. And in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, we find Logos being used. And it's very interesting because John takes that word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He uses the very term that they use for a secret knowledge and he says, Jesus is the Word. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And now He's revealed to everyone. So, so much for your secret society. Jesus came to reveal the truth to everyone, not to hide it. And so, but He found that avenue, that, that key to unlock the culture. And that's what missionaries pray for. That's what you pray for in your witnessing, isn't it? When you're talking to someone, Lord, give me something from their life that I can connect with and build from there. Yes. That's a very, very important insight and, and often is picked up. Uh, you know, people will say, uh, you know, all religions are whatever works for you, those kinds of things. But I've never had them agree then to switch. Now I said to one time a gentleman said to me, he was Muslim and he said, well, you know, religions are our paths to God. And I said, so let's trade. I'll take yours, you take mine. 
all of a sudden it didn't feel so much like it was equal. You know, I mean, he wasn't ready to do that because sometimes those statements are statements made to be kind of friendly and, and they don't want to dwell on the differences and they're kind of focusing on that. But if you get people within their own religion, they will seldom say, yeah, all the other religions are just like mine. Because by definition, faith means I believe in something and I don't believe in something else. So I may say that I'm inclusive and we try to do those kind and polite things. But in reality, if it was really true, then switching would not be any problem. So I value your, your experience. I'm sure there's much you could share with us. Thank you. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.